Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him, bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven, you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Word of the Lord. Well, my wife and I were talking about summer plans and what we wanted to do as a family. And uh, there are a couple of friends, families that are embarking on a trip that I think we're going to go on as well, and that is to go visit Acadia National Park. Anyone ever been to Acadia National Park? Uh, it's, it's up in Maine, somewhere near the Arctic Circle, I believe. Uh, it's way up there, and it's this beautiful, pristine park uh, in Maine. It's actually the end. It marks the end of the Appalachian Trail, and uh, it's supposed to be a beautiful sight. So this is going to be an adventure. We're going to have to, I don't know how long it takes to drive to Acadia, but it is going to be a long way, and it's going to be quite an experience uh, that we're going to talk about probably for the rest of our life, the good and the bad. I was reading this article uh, in Forbes magazine, and it uh, showed something very interesting. The, some scientists and sociologists have been doing studies, and what they've discovered is that experience is more valuable and more enjoyable than possessions. Experience is more enjoyable than possessions. Really doesn't make sense, I guess, when you think about it. You know, when you have an experience, whether you go to a park or you go somewhere, you, you enjoy the experience and then it's done. But if you buy something, whether it's a car or a couch or something like that, uh, you know, you have that for a long time. But the reality, as we all know, is that the enjoyment of that purchase begins to fade as that couch you've always wanted is simply a couch. But the experience grows richer and richer. The couch or the possession belongs to you, but the experience is shared. Even bad experiences can become great stories as, you, uh, as they're part of who we are. I mean, you could really say that the sum total of who we are is the experiences that we have. Definitely change the way that I think about uh, how I spend my time and my money. Well, we are a world that's into possessions, but we're also into experiences. For instance, you can turn on the TV anytime you want, and you can instantly become an ice road trucker driving across Alaska, fearing for your life and arguing with other grizzled ice road truckers. You can hop on a, uh, a crab boat in the Bering Sea, and you can fish for crab, uh, uh, fearing for your very life as you experience what it means to be uh, on the roiling ocean. Or you can join 
a group of 20-somethings, self-absorbed, narcissistic people in Big Brother and be a part of the sort of cattiness that goes on in that show. Well, the reality is we're not really experiencing those things, are we? See, to experience is to participate. Really, what we're doing in those situations is we're merely spectating. And we can fool ourselves to think we are participating, but we're not. This passage is about spectating and participating. It's about different groups, two of them, that come to see Jesus and what they experience from brushing up against him, from being in their midst. One spectates while the other participates. One becomes informed while the other group becomes transformed. The question I want to ask for us today, for we have surely gathered all around to hear about this one called Jesus, is which are we? Are we spectators? Are we participants? Are we coming simply for information? Or do we long for transformation? You see, Jesus came to transform us by forgiving us and accepting us. Therefore, we must choose to participate and not merely to spectate. Well, how do we move from spectating to participating? Really depends on three questions, three things you have to do. Number one, how do you approach Jesus? Two groups, two approaches. How do you approach Jesus? Number two, what do you expect from Jesus? Why are you in front of him? Why are you here? What is it that you're looking to get out of him? Why do you approach? What do you expect? How do you approach? What do you expect? And finally, how do you respond to Jesus? Jesus brings us to a point of response. Depending on how we respond, will really show whether we're a spectator or we're a participant. Well, let's take a look at these groups. We're going to first look at the crowd and how they approach Jesus. Verse 17, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have gathered where Jesus is going to teach. Now the Pharisees, if you'll remember, are the, the lay leaders, if you will, of the various communities. They're the righteous ones. They're the moral authorities because they have based their life on the law. They're the guys that you look up to and you want to be like. The teachers of the law, or the scribes as they are called, are professionals. They're scholars. They're the uh, priestly class, or priestly isn't the right word, but they're the learned class. They're the pastors. They're the uh, legal attorneys of the law, if you will. They're the experts who have been trained formally. And if you notice... They've come from everywhere to hear Jesus, from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. There is a big crowd of the creme de la creme, if you will, that has come to hear Jesus. Why have they come? Well, I bet some of them are very curious. Who is this man, this uneducated carpenter who's talking in such a way that he's an authority? They're curious. They want to know about him. They're also possibly threatened. Who is this one, this upstart who's coming and speaking without any regard to our traditions and to our rulings? Finally, they're interested. They want to know what is going on with this man. And so they've come from all over. They've come. 
Well, there's another group of people who have come, right? Oh, by the way, before we say that, what, what are these Pharisees hoping to hear? I think they're hoping to hear who this person is. They want to know his identity. They want to know his knowledge. And finally, they're coming to hear heresy. Come and maybe to catch him and trip him up and put an end to this. And so they come. They come through the front door and they sit down and they say, begin. But there's another group that comes, right? Not learned particularly. At least we don't hear about that. We don't even know where they're from. We don't know their title or their qualifications or really who they are. They're just four men with a paralytic. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. So four men and a paralyzed man, nothing special. Why did they come? And they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. See, they're seeking to bring him in before Jesus, much like these Pharisees and teachers of the law, but for a different purpose. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. See, they had heard about the healings, about leprosy, Jesus healing leprosy and healing blind people. Indeed, healing Peter's mother-in-law and then healing the whole village, everybody that came to him. And so they hoped that if they were to bring Jesus in and lay him, excuse me, bring the paralytic in and lay him at Jesus' feet, that Jesus would heal him. Now keep in mind, there's no rehab centers. There's no surgery. There's no OSHA. There's none of that. This is really his one shot. You know, I wonder if he was paralyzed from birth. I tend to think he's not. He was not. Because paralyzed people from birth had no friends. There was no one to watch over them except other paralyzed people. Now, these guys loved him. Maybe he was working and he was paralyzed. He was hurt. He fell. I don't know. But they stuck with him. And there was no way that this man was going to get in front of Jesus without these four men. Well, listen to how they came. They wanted to come through the front door like the Pharisees. But unfortunately, there was no way in. Now, I don't know about you, but if you came in the back saying, move out of the way, we've got a paralyzed person, you probably would get out of the way, right? Nobody's interested. Pharisees, we've got our seat. We're here to listen. You deal with whatever you're dealing with. They could have gone home, could have called it a day. I guess this isn't going to happen. But no, they went up to the roof. Most houses uh, back in Judea had two floors. You had the first floor, and then you had the second floor, which was covered or in whatever variety. And so this was a load-bearing floor because people were on it. But they, excuse me, but people would be on it. Yes, but they went and they started to dig. And you can imagine as Jesus is here preaching to all of these learned people and a little bit of dust starts falling on his head. And Jesus continues and then all of a sudden there's a, a glimmer of sunlight as the roof begins to fall apart. And now everybody's looking up and somehow they find a way to lower this paralytic person. It's not easy, by the way. Not exactly how sure they did it. They didn't bring a body board or something. They just figured we've got to get him there at this time. And so they would not be stopped. See, the Pharisees brought their curiosity. But these five men brought their conviction. 
The Pharisees were spectators, but the men were participants. The Pharisees were interested, but these five men were invested. It's not hard to see this being played out on the world today, is it? We have our curious people, the intelligentsia, the universities, the learned men that come and ask the question, who is this Jesus? Show us more information. We're willing to hear what it has to say, and we will judge. The media does the same thing. And people come, and they want to hear. Show us. Tell us more about this person. We've come in. We've sat. We're interested in listening. But they're all spectators and not participants. As long as it's not difficult, I'll listen. As long as it's convenient and it's not offensive, I'll listen. And as long as it's irrelevant and doesn't really touch me too close to home, I'll listen. I remember when I was at UVA and I stayed all four summers at UVA and I taught tennis. And so I was staying at our, at our place and there was no one else there. And uh, I, I met a couple of people on the street and one of them was in a wheelchair. It's a wheelchair and there was another guy there. And uh, for some reason I was drawn to them and I talked with them some. It turned out that they were homeless, that, that they'd been kicked out of their apartment. They were waiting for a new apartment, but they had no place to stay. And it was there when I was confronted with the question, what was I going to do? Was I going to spectate or was I going to participate? Well, my heart went out to these guys. I believed their story, whether it was true or not. So I told them, you can come stay with me in the interim. And it was very interesting. When I went, our apartment was, was on the second floor. There's no elevator, no nothing. How are we going to get him up? And so literally, I threw this guy over my shoulder, he didn't weigh much, and carried him up because there was no way for him to get up. So it's one of those things where you're scratching your head doing this with, what have I gotten myself into? See, I moved from being a spectator when I picked this person up and took him upstairs into a participator. See, here's the truth, my friends. You'll only approach God like these five men if you're desperate. Are you a spectator or a participant? Why have you come here? To listen or to long? You'll only approach God if you're desperate. So how are you desperate? Maybe you're lonely. Maybe nobody understands you. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you feel empty inside. All of your accomplishments and all the things that you've done feel like dust to you. You feel like you've wasted your life. Maybe you're longing for a different world. That you get the nagging sense that there's more to life than simply the way you've been living. You can fill in the blank, I don't know what it is. Your biggest need is, go ahead and put it in. But in order to come, you must come with desperation. You must come believing that he has the answer to your problem. You must come believing that he has the power to meet you with whatever your need is. And you must come believing that he cares. And that when you fall before, uh, on your face before his feet, that he will reach out to you. It's the desperate that find Jesus, the participators, not the spectators. And so we must choose to participate, not to spectate. 
Well, that brings me to my second point. Talked about how we choose to approach Jesus. We then need to talk about what we expect to achieve or receive from Jesus. And we see here that the expectation of these five men was to heal the legs of the paralytic. Why? Well, Jesus would seem to be the only one who could take care of this. Now again, think of the ramifications of being paralyzed. There was no job. There was no opportunity. He was basically, you know, resigned to begging or doing whatever. There was an expectation there, and the expectation was, heal my legs. Restore me to wholeness. But Jesus, in verse 20, said, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, some people talk about their faith and talk about the four men, that it was their faith that Jesus saw. And to be sure, it is. But do you think that the man on the mat had faith and hope? Absolutely. He wanted just as much to be healed. When Jesus saw their faith, the paralytic and the four men who brought him, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. This strange statement, your sins are forgiven you. It wasn't what they were expecting, was it? But we understand what it means, your sins. He's talking about all of the violations that we've done against the law of God. When he said your sins, he was talking about the sins that we've done against man. The lies that we've had. Our lack of love. The standard to love one another as yourself. The standard of being angry. Instead being cruel instead of kind. Bitterness. Frustration. Lust. Run the tape in your head. Even just this week. And think about the sins that you have committed. What about the sins against God? If the way we are supposed to live is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, have you? With all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our heart. Do not worship idols, but worship only Him. What have we put on the throne of our hearts? That car, that boat, that vacation, that whatever. Every sin is ultimately against God. Paul says in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For all, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and they exchanged the worship of God for images, idols. See, God takes sin seriously. We all have a ledger. Do you know that? We all have a ledger. It, it is recording all the time. Recording every thought, every action, every deed from the beginning to the end. I've never seen my ledger, but if I think for a while, I know what's in it. See, the word sin literally means to miss the mark. The mark of God is holiness. He didn't create us in his image simply so we could look good on the outside. He made us to be like God. And so unfortunately, as I look into my journal, my ledger, what I see is a bunch of red ink. Hatred, anger, blasphemy, 
how I've handled my relationship with my wife, with my kids. Every careless word that I've spoken is in my ledger. I have red ink on my ledger. And we can try to forget it's there, that it doesn't exist, that nobody can really see our thoughts and our minds. We can deny it and we can simply say, I don't owe anyone anything. But the reality is that we are not our own, that we are made by another. This world is not yours. It belongs to your creator who brought life into us and sustains it right now. Jesus said all, Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And everyone, just as is destined for one man, a man to die and to face judgment. And yet Jesus looks at this man and he says, man, your sins are forgiven. The Greek in the perfect tense indicates that it is forever. Your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future, they will never be counted against you. See, Jesus' purpose, why he came on the earth, was to forgive sins. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we think about this concept, okay, God has eradicated my journal, okay, there's no more red ink, we've been brought back to zero. But if you believe that, you don't understand what forgiveness of sins means. Because if there's no red in my journal, if it's only black, do you know what that means? It means I'm righteous. It means I'm acceptable. It means that I'm holy. It means that when I walk into heaven, I walk in as a glorious one, as one who has literally lived the same type of life as the Son of God. God doesn't make us sons of God simply because he, we want him to. He makes us sons of God because we deserve to be. But we don't deserve to be, do we? So when Jesus utters these words to this man, your sins are forgiven. What are you saying? is that I'm giving you life. I'm giving you glory. I'm giving you splendor. I'm giving you acceptance. I'm giving you sonship, immortality. Of course it would make sense why Jesus would heal his life before his legs. His life means everything. His legs are temporary. The Pharisees, the enemies, they got it. They said, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus did not come for our self-actualization. Did not come to bring ethical teaching or religious inspiration. He came to bring forgiveness of sins read an article in Forbes magazine concerning the insurance industry, why accident and forgiveness, auto insurance, isn't so forgiving. You, of course, have seen the commercials, right? Accident forgiveness, right? You have an accident, don't worry, it's like it never happened. Well, the reality is Forbes did the analysis of this, they discovered that that's not true at all. You see, regardless of what the insurance companies say, there is a record that continues to exist. See, depending on the fault, there's what's called an accident surcharge. 
even if you are a victim, it's no fault of your own, there will be an accident surcharge. And as it continues and goes and goes and goes in terms of what your fault is, it goes higher and higher. Want to participate in those other programs, the safe driver? Not anymore. Well, wait a second, I thought you forgave my accident forgiveness. Well, we did, but we didn't forget. What about my GPA that's super high? No, nope, I'm sorry, you can't participate in that either. And guess what? When renewal time comes around, they don't have to keep you. In fact, they think you may be a liability. And so we're going to cancel your policy. Accident forgiveness isn't so forgiving. We can tend to think about God in this way. Don't do it again. I'm going to forgive you this time. But I'm holding on to a little something. I'm going to keep it over your head in case you don't shape up. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus is so, so different in how he forgives sins than the auto insurance company. See, here's the way the insurance company does it. We're going to take you back to zero. We're going to forget this ever happened, even though not really. But you see, there's no accident in our situation. We're 100% guilty. Our ledger is red. But here's what's astounding. Jesus Christ takes his ledger that is only black, and he puts our name on it. And he takes our ledger with our name on it, and he puts his on it. He gives us his life for our death. He gives us his holiness for our sin. Christ has come to not simply forgive sin, but to make us righteous by paying the price. It is true an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. There's no such thing as forgiveness. There is always a ledger and there is always a cost. And so when Jesus stands before this paralytic and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He's at the same time sealing his faith. He could have put in parentheses, because I'm going to pay for them. That you might have my righteousness and holiness. So come to Christ for forgiveness. Come in desperation but come in expectation. By any means necessary, throw away this concept. There's no way he's going to forgive me of this. You are never a sinner so great that Christ isn't twice a savior so greater. You can't dress it up. You can't come with a partially marked out doctored cooked book. You have to bring your accidents that aren't accidents at all. You are the paralytic. And I don't know if your friends brought you here today. Somehow you wandered in here. But you must bring all of your sin. Because you cannot be forgiven unless you come broken. So come to him. And come to him now. Expecting his righteousness. Well, this brings me to my final point. We've talked about how we approach Jesus, what we expect from Jesus, how do we respond to Jesus? Notice the response of the Pharisees. Incredulity and doubt. Who is this man who blasphemies? He can't forgive sins, only God. And yet when Jesus speaks to the man, he responds in faith. I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. 
See, the miracle, Jesus is simply doing the miracle so that people would know the authority he has to forgive sins. It's the forgiving of the sins. And what does it say? The man has a choice, right? I don't know, this is kind of embarrassing if it doesn't work, right? The scriptures say, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, which was on the Sabbath, by the way, and he went home. Immediately he went home. I think with his head held high. He was no longer considered cursed by God. He'd received the very glory of God. God has done this. You know, I wonder what he was more excited about. The legs or the pronouncement that God had given to him? Think about it, you know. The rest of his life would continue. All of the awe would maybe leave. He'd grow older. Something else would hurt, some other ailment. His body would start to decay. But his experience showed him that the love that Jesus Christ had given him, the glory, the inheritance, all that God had bestowed upon him by giving him his ledger was only increasing in its value. Jesus Christ did not come to fix the world. He did not come to heal everybody. He came to forgive sins, to resurrect us from the inside. And one day, he will come and perfect us and recreate this world and give us a new body that's indestructible and a status that when we walk into heaven, angels will bow as they see our glory. The Pharisees saw something amazing. Verse 26, an amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. But their glorification was temporary. In fact, the very next thing that happens, they're back at it, questioning and complaining. Jesus, you keep doing this thing about God, about being God and forgiving sins. We just want to see you heal people. Their expectation didn't change because they spectated. They didn't participate. The Pharisees were informed, but the man was transformed. The Pharisees continued to pile up the red ink. But the man had Christ's ink. The Pharisees were still God's enemy, but the man was Christ's son. The Pharisees had doubt, but the man had peace. You know, that invitation was available to all of them, right there and then. It still is. And how you respond shows what you receive. Have you responded? to the gospel, to the call of God, come and be redeemed. What's your condition? Not denying that you may have problems in your life. Jesus Christ did not come to solve the problems of the world. In fact, many of them, all of them in some way or, or, or shape, is God molding us. What's important is not that your legs are working. The key question is, is your heart redeemed? Do you have the glory of God? So don't put your worth on the problems that you have or the achievement or success or lack of it that you've garnered, but on the favor of God. It's yours forever if you are a Christian. 
You have been given an inheritance. So claim it. Live in it. And glorify God for what he's done. If you're a non-Christian, you've never submitted yourself to the love of God. The call of Jesus Christ is right now as much relevant and real as it was back then. Because we serve a resurrected God. He is risen from the dead. So show up. Look up. Give him your heart, your will, and your life. Your brokenness. Say, would you give me your glory? Would you forgive me my sins and give me your righteousness? And when you do, you will experience peace. Knowing that you have been reconciled to the living God who has put his seal upon your heart. And you will go home praising God for his goodness. Christianity is not a transaction. It's a transformation. So believe. Respond. And glorify. God came to transform us by accepting us and forgiving us. Therefore, choose to participate rather than spectate. Let's pray. Lord, the gospel seems incredible. It's so easy to be incredulous. Who would do such a thing, let alone the Son of God? Lord, but your righteousness and your power and your goodness is so wonderful that you have the ability to grant holiness and righteousness to everyone who comes because of your gracious gift and sacrifice on the cross. Lord, help us not to look at you from afar, Lord, with a wary eye, but to come at your feet. Lord, help us to be like the four men, reaching out to the desperate and the lonely and the hurt in our community bringing them to the foot of the cross to hear the message that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, whatever's going on in each one of our lives, for all of those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, help us to hold our head up high. Help us to plant our flag surely on the inheritance and the righteousness you've given us. And Lord, let us not fear for you are with us. And you will surely bring us to the end. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.